Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, as James said, we are in chapter 3 there, uh, verse 20 through 35. So now last week, when we did our Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, um, we started the message with a, with a question. And I asked you, I said, where is the most dangerous place in America? And if you weren't here, the answer to that question was the mother's womb. Almost a million, over 900,000 children were aborted in America in probably what will be the number once they tabulated in 2023. It far exceeds any other form of death. I think heart disease is next. Well, today... Very similar to that, I'm going to ask you a couple questions as we start the message. What is the greatest news in the world? The gospel, right? The greatest news in the world is the gospel. What is the gospel? That God became a man, sent his son to the earth, Lived for 30-some years, 33, 34 years, never sinned, never disobeyed his father, willingly dies on a cross in our place, takes upon our sin, and then raises three days later and says, if you will trust me and put your trust in me, I will forgive your sins. That is the best news ever. Like we have a lifetime of sin and disobedience and rebellion. Even after we come to Christ, we struggle with sin and disobedience. And the greatest news ever is that God who created all things does something to reconcile us back. And he does something not just by not being hardly involved and just making some edict. No, he becomes one of us and suffers in our place. I mean, You could say, well, why did God do that? Because he's identifying with us. This is an intimate, personal thing that God is doing to show us his love. Clearly the best news ever. Now what's sad is, is that there's a large portion of the world who will not take advantage of that good news. Even if they hear it and know it, they will not trust in it. So consequently, what is the, I don't want to say the worst, but the hardest and maybe the worst, not that it's wrong, news in the world is that many will not accept that truth and God will judge it and judge them and they will spend eternity away from God. That's the hardest thing to know and hear. Most in the world, right? Jesus says there's a wide road that leads to destruction and many will go that way. There's a narrow path that leads to life and few will find it. So just based on that one statement, we get a sense that there'll be more people denying the truth of God and not having eternal life, not walking in and accepting and taking part of that forgiveness that God offers, but rebelling and keeping their hearts hard and being judged for eternity. 
Now, as we've said before, that, that is not a conversation that most people want to have. There's not, even Christians don't like to even utter those words that, you know, there's only one name in which men will be saved in the book of Acts chapter 4, the name of Jesus, or the gospel of John chapter 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but by me, right? Jesus says, no one, right? And yet that's what our faith tells us. That is absolutely what God declares. He makes it clear over and over and over. He makes it clear. And so today's passage is going to have some, a, tough, a tough topic. And that topic has to do whether we will spend eternity with God or not with God. And it hinges on this statement that, that Jesus, or that I should say that, that Mark records here about something, a conversation that takes place between Jesus and some Pharisees. And we're gonna, I'm going to give you a sneak preview of what this is. We find it in Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 30. And we're going to cover it in depth when we get there. But just to kind of give it to you here at the beginning. Jesus is talking to them because of some things that they have said to him, which we'll unpack here in a little bit. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, but whatever blaspheme, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. So, you may have had this conversation if you're a, a Christian, maybe you've read Scripture and you've come across this idea or this, this statement here in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, um, basically Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, if we're guilty of that, we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, and it leads, that means eternal death. So, that's a heavy statement. And so as Christians, or maybe even as not Christians, if you're here today and you're not, not a believer, you've not been born again, that statement begs the question, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because if blaspheming the Holy Spirit means that I am not saved and I cannot be forgiven for that, I think I'd want to know what that is. And I think you would want to know what that is. And so here Jesus is going to dive into this and make this statement. And it's, it's for many, it, it, it strikes fear in people because they begin to wonder, well, have I done that? I, I've said some things in my life, and, and, but I don't know what it means. I've, I've been angry with God. Is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Is, is, is denying God? Is, is saying that I don't believe? Is that denying the Holy Spirit? I mean, all sorts of things begin to, to come through our mind. And, and have I done that? And if I have, does that mean I can't be forgiven? Because that's what, that's what Jesus says. This is, if you've done that, you can't be forgiven. And so we're going to dive into the text. And, and hopefully, when we get done, you'll have a better understanding of, of what Jesus is saying here and what God really intends for us to come away with. And it is a warning. It is absolutely a very solemn warning um, as, we, as we live out our life. So, not going to have a big idea, but it's a question. What does it mean to 
blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to try and address. All right, so as we get started here, I want to I take you back because everything is in context. So when we read something in Scripture, we always want to know the context in which we're, we're reading this historical event because that matters. If, if, if someone walked into your house and you were having a conversation with your son, your wife, your daughter, um, and, and they didn't know the context of the conversation, they could walk in and get something completely different based on what you were saying than what really was happening because they don't know the whole story or about what was said right before they walked in, the, the history behind what was being said, they don't know. And it's very true in Scripture as well, that when we come to a passage, we all want to make sure that we understand the context to the best of our ability by God's grace that we can kind of see this. So remember, the context here is Mark's gospel, Right? Mark is writing, obviously he is, we think, penning much of what Peter is telling him, but, but writing this, this gospel, this very short gospel, it's very clear, he's, he's, he's not mincing words, he, he leaves out some things that some of the other gospel writers have, for whatever reason, he's writing, we think, to the Gentile audience, and so he's leaving some things out that are pertaining to what it means to be Jewish, because he knows that his, his letter, his gospel is going to be primarily read by by Romans or Gentiles, people that are not Jewish. And he's getting right to the point of everything. He's not mincing words. That's why it's such a, a great gospel to be translated and taken to other countries because it's condensed, it's short, it's powerful, it's meaningful. And so what did we see early on? Mark makes it clear as he talks about Jesus that, that Jesus has come on the scene, he's been baptized, he's spoken in the synagogue, he spoke with authority, he has cast out demons. He has healed people. He's healed lepers, which are people that are almost just right off as being dead. He's done all of those things. He's also given us insight the fact that the Pharisees are on the scene here in Galilee, and they are wanting to know what is Jesus doing and why, and they are not happy. And we kind of identified several weeks ago the reason they're not happy is because they see that he is taking the authority away from them, that, that he maybe is going to take away their popularity, he, that, that he's going to get the attention now, and they don't like it, right? Even though they've been waiting for a Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years, their hearts have been longing for a Messiah, and here he is, and he's doing wonderful things, he's healing people, and he also says that he can forgive sins, and boy, that made them upset, but Jesus is just saying, this is what, what else would we want the Messiah to do? I mean, if the Messiah was coming, wouldn't, wouldn't that's what they want? That, that he could forgive sins? And that's where our hope, our hope is at. And, and that's the greatest news in the world is the gospel. We just identified that. And that not only that he could forgive sins, but he could heal people. And, and that he has power over physical things and physical ailments. And he has power over death. And he has power over demonic forces. I mean, that's the God we want to serve. And, and yet they aren't happy with him. So I want to build some context here. So I'm going to read two things from earlier in the Gospel of Mark. One is the very beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Here what you have is, is Mark is, is recording the, the baptism of Jesus, okay, when he gets baptized by John the Baptist. It says, when he came up out of the water, Jesus was down in the water, and he was being baptized, immediately he saw the heavens being tore open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So what do we see here? The Holy Spirit 
descends upon Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit has not been given to the church yet because Jesus hasn't died and resurrected, but the Holy Spirit now clearly is in this man, this person, the man that claims to be God. The Holy Spirit is on him and in him. And the reason he can do all that he's going to be able to do is because the Holy Spirit is in him. God's Spirit resides in this man called Jesus. And then we look at Mark chapter 3. Brian talked about this just a few weeks ago. Chapter 3 and verse 13 through 15. Now he's in Capernaum, which is in northern Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. He's been preaching there. He's been healing people. He's been speaking in the, the synagogue. And he goes out to this mountainside. We don't know, but he takes the, some men with him, and he basically calls them and says, I want you to be my apostles. Many people were probably following him, but he, he seeks out these 12 men, and Brian did a great job a few weeks ago kind of laying those 12 men out, talking about them. But I want to read this to you again. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. So why did he do this? So that they might be with him, and they're going to spend a couple years with him. And he might send them out to preach. So he's preparing them. He wants them to be with him so he can equip them and teach them. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to send them out, right? He's given them this great news that he's come with, this, this beautiful truth that he's going to come and be the Savior, and he is God in the flesh, and he's going to die, and he's preparing them, and he wants to walk this journey with them. And so then he wants to send them out, and you and I are here today, and if we've heard of the gospel, even if we're not believers, we've heard of the gospel because of these 12 men and what God did. He started the movement, so to speak. And now the gospel is available all over the world in some form or another. Not in every place, not in every jungle, not in every tribe, but the gospel is at some level all over the world. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus is giving them authority to cast out demons. Now, how does that authority come? That authority comes because Jesus is saying that, but the thing that's casting out the demons is not the apostles themselves. It's the Holy Spirit's work in them. The Holy Spirit is working. When they do that, the Holy Spirit is the one at work, I believe, doing that. It's not them themselves. And so notice that we, we see a couple things here in the early part of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is, is filled Christ. Jesus is sending them out in the power of the Holy Spirit, or is going to at least, and he's going to give them authority through the Holy Spirit to cast out demons. Now just tuck that away in your head as we kind of now dive into the text. We'll kind of revisit that. Our passage, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. It says, then he went home. Okay, so he's up on the mountainside, we think, or somewhere here, and he's talking to his disciples. And now it says, and then they went home. They probably went back to Capernaum is what we're guessing. It's probably where he was located there. We see that early in the Gospels. It 
And a crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So he just, he just, Mark is just saying there were so many people. It was just, they couldn't even get around a table. They couldn't do anything. Maybe outside the house was full. Maybe inside the house was full. There was just no way to have peace and, and quiet to be able to even have a meal. There were so many people being drawn to Jesus. They wanted to come. They wanted to be healed. Maybe they, maybe they had a, 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 a relative that was crippled. Maybe they, had, uh, maybe they just wanted to hear him speak because he spoke like no one had ever spoke before with authority. And, and you know, when that kind of starts, man, everybody, you, you're just attracting a crowd. Verse 21, this is when his family heard it, they, sent him, they, sent, they, were, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, tough text here. When his family heard it, well, who's that? I don't know. Was it his brothers? Was it his mother, sisters? Was it, who knows, right? We believe Joseph probably is not around. He's probably died already. We're not sure, but we don't see and hear of him ever since the birth, really. And I think there's reasons that why Joseph wouldn't be around. I mean, that God would not have him around and, and maybe have taken him home earlier. That's a whole other discussion. But so here, that word in the Greek talks about family. It's translated family. It could mean just close, close friends, like kinsmen, people that he he really is doing life with. However, we're going to see a little bit later that his family does seem to be there because it's going to talk about his mother and, and some people and, and brothers are going to be there. And so we don't know exactly what's taking place here, but the family heard it, either the close friends or his family, and they went out to seize him. Did they go out of the house to get him? So obviously Jesus is outside, it seems like, outside the house. And he's the crowd is gathering around him. There's so many people there. And, and the family's going out and, and saying, okay, telling everybody, he's out of his mind. <laughs> now, are they telling everybody that because they just want them to leave? No. I think they really think he's out of his mind. Now, you think about that for a second. We know that his brothers did not, or at least James, did not believe that he was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And then he becomes kind of the father of the Jewish church or the church in Jerusalem. Think about it. He's brand new on the scene. He's my brother. He gets baptized. Okay, we all went down and got Saul, John, prophet. We all get baptized. Jesus gets baptized. You know, that's great. And he's, he's talking about God with people. That's great. He's, you know, he's, he seems very knowledgeable. Wow, that's, yeah, my brother's very gifted and that kind of thing. All of a sudden, Jesus starts healing people. All of a sudden, he starts casting out demons of people and saying some crazy things like he can forgive sins. I mean, to a Jewish person, that could be sacrilegious. I mean, that could be heresy. This is, this is my brother doing this. Like, who is he? And so you can see where they're thinking. And so I think in the context of this, I think that they're saying he's out of his mind. Now, are there other benefits for, for them to go out and do this and, and to say he's out of his mind? Yeah, I'm sure that the family just wants to be left alone. They didn't sign up for this. They didn't sign up for all these people invading the house and being there. And you could say, well, yeah, but don't they see what's happening? 
No, they don't see everything that's happening. Heck, we see that even Jesus' followers, even the apostles that spend the next two years with him, all the way up until the time of his death, don't really understand what's going on. Exactly. That's why, that's why Peter says, look, you're not going to go and die. And that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like, you don't understand, Peter, why I came. And so we can see it. You have to remember that, that we're looking back in history and we see the whole context of history. We see way before and we see way after. We know all the details. And so it's very easy for us to say, oh yeah, I see it. They didn't see it like we see it. And his family heard it. They went out to seize him. This idea of seizing him literally meant like binding him, like, like making him come and do what they want him to do. We see that was really what Peter tried to do later, before, right before Jesus was crucified. He tries to tell him, you're not going to do that, Lord. And Peter gets smacked down and says, get behind me, Satan. And so that's the context here. You know, we think about people being out of their mind, and, and isn't that true in our culture? We have people that do all sorts of things, and we say, they're out of their mind. Like people even, they're religious people that they'd get up and do and say crazy things. And I hope you're saying they're out of their mind, right? But they, they proclaim that they can do these incredible things, that if you sow a seed, you're going to get this, right? You're going to get a whatever. You're going to be blessed beyond belief in worldly things. If you just speak a word of faith, then God is going to answer that because he owes it to you if you do the right thing. And we would say they're out of their mind. We've seen for years pastors say they can heal people. Does God heal people? Yes. Should we pray for healing? Yes. Do I believe God does heal people? Yes. Do I think that some man or woman has the power on their own to heal people? No, I don't. Maybe I'll find out I'm wrong someday, but I don't see that at all in Scripture that way. Notice that he said here, he gave them power, the 12, to cast out demons. He didn't say everybody that's a Christian has that power, the 12. So God is giving power for them for a purpose. Verse 22, chapter 3 of Mark. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, now just, the scribes are there in Galilee, and, and they're obviously at the house there. Now, these, these scribes may have been the scribes that have been here all along. We've, we've talked about the scribes. They went out, and, and then when they're picking grain, the, the scribes were upset and, and said, you know, they're, the Sabbath, they're violating the Sabbath. There's, there's scribes all over the place. Scribes were lawyer-type people. Many of them were Pharisees. They kind of originate in Jerusalem, and so maybe they've been there this whole time and kind of just, they're kind of taking an assessment of who Jesus is and the claims that he's making. Now, just remember, they're aware of Jesus from way back, months earlier, because many of them were, there was Pharisees and religious leaders at the baptism in, at John. And so they're aware of what this, who this guy is. Jesus has, has been to Judea, probably been to Jerusalem and, and flipped the tables and done some things. So they're aware that this guy is making waves and, and, and making it difficult for them. And, and, and now he's gone up into Galilee and they're there to say, okay, is he, is he deceiving all these people? We need to go and check this out. And so they've been there and they've been watching and listening to every word that this man says. 
And obviously you'd say, well, that's a good thing, and it is good to, to vet him to make sure that he's right. But we're going to see that, that really what's happening in their hearts is, is not that they really want to know who he is. They want him to shut up and sit down. And they don't want to deal with him. And so verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed. He's possessed by Bezabel. By the, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, I will tell you that that is probably the crux of the whole passage here. Rest right there in verse 22. They're saying that he's Satan. That's what they're saying. They're saying this guy is evil. He is Satan. That, that word there that, for that, that God there, that, that false god, Beelzebul, we're not sure exactly, but probably it's originating from Baal. Many of you have read and heard about Baal and the offerings and all those things. Um, we're not sure. The word's been translated a few different ways and used a few different places throughout the Old Testament. There was a, there was a God in the city of Ekron that, that was kind of associated with this as well, and they would pray to him. We can see that back in Kings. And, and so what they're saying, though, is, is this man is the devil. Okay, this is Jesus who God has said, I'm well pleased with you. He's healing people. He's, he's forgiving sin. He's healing leprosy. He's casting out demons. And the only thing that the Pharisees can come up with and what they go to is he's the devil. And not only that, he says, and by the prince of the demons, he casts out demons. In other words, they're saying he is not just a demon. He's just not doing evil. He is the authority of other evils, other demons, and he is the prince of them. Pretty heavy statement by the Pharisees. Now just remember that. Remember the depths of their denial of who he is. I don't know that you could have a, a stronger denial of Jesus at that moment. You say, oh no, he's not God. Okay. Many people thought that. They're not saying that. They're saying he's, he's Satan. And he's deceiving all of you. Then Jesus tells them kind of a parable. We pick it up in 23 through 26. And he says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus is just kind of just being real logical with them here. Like they are off the deep end in their despise of him and their, their, just, their hatred of him. And he just lovingly says, okay, does this make any sense? And, and you can imagine there's other people here listening to this conversation. So he's speaking, I think, not just to the Pharisees, but also to the people that are listening. And he's just making the statement. He says, look, if I was Satan, why would I cast out my own demons? Why would I do that? 
Because if a kingdom is divided against itself, it can't stand. And in fact, I think he uses the term kingdom because I think in some respects, he's associating here with the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. He's kind of saying, yes, there is one. And if that is true, then that kingdom can't stand. And then he basically takes it, if a house is divided against itself, it will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. So he's just kind of laying it out here to help them see that their, their statement is absolutely ludicrous. But yet they don't back off their statement. Now, in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 24, we may ask here in, in, in Mark, what causes this conversation that they're having? Why are they saying he casts out demons? I think, and just to kind of give you some context, when you, when you read the Gospel of Mark, like I said, Mark leaves out some things because he's just getting to the punchline. He just wants to get to the, the main thing. He's not interested in maybe all the details, all the other things. Where Matthew, and, some, and sometimes Luke, is, is a little bit more documenting things. And so I just want to read you Matthew's account of this in chapter 12, verse 22 through 24, just as a kind of a, another point. It says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. But all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So same, same event it looks like. Here, there's somebody that Jesus is outside casting the demon out of. And that's probably what initiates the conversation. Mark doesn't record that person. It's clear that Jesus has already done this in the past. But probably a more detailed version here is in Matthew. So they're outside. All the people have gathered around. His family is saying, would you please? He's out of his mind. Jesus now heals this guy. The Pharisees are looking on, and they're saying, the, the reason he can do this is because he is Satan in the flesh. And he commands the legions, to do whatever he wants. And so Jesus goes on, though, here in Mark chapter 3, verse 27, and says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what is Jesus, what is, what is this piece of this parable? What, what's he saying here? He says, look, You can't bind Satan. You can't plunder what, God is, what, what Satan is doing unless you first bind him. And so what Jesus is doing, I think, is he's binding Satan. When he comes on the scene and begins to heal people, he's binding the God of this world. He's not allowing the God of this world to interfere with the healing, with the casting out demons, with the forgiveness of sins. Satan is bound. He cannot do that. And what Jesus is kind of saying, he says, look, I'm co I've come to bind the strong man. I came to the earth to bind the God of this world that has blinded you all to the light of the gospel. You were born into sin. I've come to bind that and to stop that and to make a way. And then when I bind him, I can plunder his house. I'll talk more about that here in a minute. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. The writer here in Hebrews, remember Hebrews is about... Um, the author of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish people to really say, Jesus has become our great high priest. 
He has fulfilled the, the, the sacrificial system. He, well, there's no need to do sacrifices in him because he's it. He is the, the great high priest. He is our perfect sacrifice. Well, why was that necessary? Well, what, is, what does it say here? He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. I mean, he's saying, we all share in flesh and blood. We are all flesh and blood, the people, right? The children. He himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. So there we see in, I won't go there, but in Philippians chapter 2, it says he left the, the throne room of God, he left heaven, came down and took on flesh. He partakes of the same things that we have. Why does he do that? Hebrews is making the point is the reason he does that is because for him to be the perfect sacrifice, to be our great high priest, he must be one of us. It's not enough an animal, a bull, a calf, a bird, it doesn't matter. He has to be one of us. And so God takes on flesh, comes down, and takes on flesh and becomes our sacrifice. So let's finish reading that passage. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, so through death, so he took these things on, and, and the, the writer here is now saying he's going to die, through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's come to plunder the enemy's house. And the first thing he does is he binds the strong man. And how does he do that? He lives a sinless life. He dies and he gets resurrected from the dead and he defeats death. That is binding the strong man. No longer does Satan have authority over that, over death. Jesus now has, has come, and now Jesus has bound him, and he can plunder the house. Now, there's some different views about what that may mean. I think what he's saying is, I can come, and I can plunder your, your kingdom, Satan. I can take anybody I want that will believe and give their life to me. I can take them. I will take my sheep. You have no control over them anymore. I can plunder all that you think is yours because I've bound you, because I have authority. And he binds him, and he does that. And so what's the point? Just what I said, Jesus came to bind the strong man. And, and, and just, I want that to, to just rest. I know we talk about the gospel in all sorts of different ways and the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. I mean, think about what God is doing here for us. The, the reason that, that you're um, a believer today is because Jesus came and bound the strong man and plundered his house and took you. You're, you're the spoils of his, his plundering. Now, this morning, if you're not in Christ, you're not a born-again believer, you're not, you've not been plundered. You're still in the kingdom of darkness. You're still figuratively there. You're, you're not, you've not been ransomed by God yet. But God is not done. Jesus is still plundering the house every day. People are coming and trusting in Christ all the time. It is never too late. I pray this morning that people that are in the first service, the second service, that there'll be some, that today will be the day that they will move from that kingdom to being plundered by God through Christ and become a believer. 
Mark chapter 28 through 30 of chapter 3. Now here's where it gets a little tough. And we have some questions. Jesus goes on here and says, Truly I say to you, that, that word truly uh, is like, this is really important. This, I'm, I'm, this is really important. I'm getting ready to share with you. That's kind of what that, that terminology means. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Okay, so here in this text, we're getting ready to read, there's two very powerful statements that we need to make note of. One, that one. That is a glorious statement. Think about that. Jesus is saying, whatever sin you've committed, it can be forgiven. So this morning, if you're sitting here and you think, oh, but you don't know my, no, whatever sin, right? The text there says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men. Whatever blasphemies they utter. God is saying, look, Jesus, I, I'm going to forgive them all. I died for all of them. It doesn't matter what they are. Murder, gossip, embezzlement, fornication, adultery. I've died for them. They can be forgiven. All of them. That is glorious news. We should res- we, when we come and we worship and, and we celebrate the gospel, that's what we're celebrating. I said last week, I said in, in, our, in our message last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. It doesn't say he made him to be some sins. He made him to, to penalize for some sins so that some people could be righteous. No, he made him to be sin. All sin went on him, the judgment of us all, so that we could have a righteousness not of our own. We didn't deserve that. God just does that for us in his, his mercy and his love. He calls us to himself. He dies for us, and he imputes a righteousness to us, a righteousness that we will never have on our own that God gives us, and that's why he's worthy of our praise because he's the one that does it. He's the one that deserves the glory. We didn't do anything to deserve that. In fact, we've done everything we could to not deserve it. And so a glorious thing. Now, the question is, how do I get forgiven? Does God forgive everybody? Because it says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever he blasphemes. So some people would read that and say, oh, universalism, everybody gets saved, praise God. We're all, we're all children of men, so we're all saved. We all get to go to heaven. No, no, you, you always have to read the scripture in full context. So every place else, what do we see? Will, can sin be forgiven? Yes, in Christ. Last week, we read a passage that said, in Christ, these things are true, right? Jesus is, Mark is not recording that, but that's the truth there. In Christ, these things can happen. And, and we see this earlier in Mark. Mark chapter 1 Verse 4, here John is baptizing Jesus, and it says, John appeared, baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of what? Of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John is now already beginning, and Mark is recording this, that to be forgiven of sin, repentance is necessary. So it's not just this, this blanket statement that everybody, Jesus is going to die and everybody gets forgiven. No, it's, it's couched under this idea that repentance is necessary. Then we have to ask the question, so what is repentance? Repentance is turning away from my sin. It's desiring not to sin. 
Does it mean we'll be perfect yet? No, we won't be perfect. We're not, we're not Jesus. It's the desire of our heart not to, to hate our sin. We don't want to do those things, right? I want to turn away from it. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, which is kind of where we all started here a few months ago, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So it's here. The kingdom is available. Repent and believe the gospel. It's here, it's present, but you can't partake of it unless you repent and believe in the gospel. And what is the gospel? That Jesus took upon sin for us, died in our place, sinlessly and raised from the dead. And if we trust in him and that work and hate our sin and turn away from it, then all sins can be forgiven. So repentance is necessary, which is the point. If we repent of any sin, God is faithful to forgive us. That is, somebody should say amen to that. I mean, if, if, if any sin that we have, if we will just turn from it and go to God and say, Father, forgive me. I, I hate that about myself. I don't want that in my life. God forgives it. God forgives it. Where do we see that? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of my, one of my favorite passages. I, I, and the reason I like it is because it says so many things in, in such a short verse. We have sin. We need to confess it. God makes that clear. So we have sin, we have to confess it. God is faithful. Amen. He's just. Amen. He wants to forgive our sins. Praise God. And not only is he going to cleanse us and forgive us, but he's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's like if we're not sure, he's saying, I'm going to forgive you. But just so you understand, I'm cleansing you completely and making you white as snow. There's, there's no residual left. There's, no, there's no, nothing left, no judgment left of you. Romans, what? 8.1. Now, therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We are completely purged from our sin, cleansed by the work of Christ. Once again, why is he worthy? Because he's the one that does that. Now, that was the first part of the statement, which was really good news. But let's read the last part of that statement in Mark chapter 28, or chapter 3, verse 28 and 30. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So back to the question. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because there's no forgiveness for that. There's no forgiveness for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter six or chapter 5, verse 16 John says it this way. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will forgive him, or God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So there, he, the first part of that, he's saying, look, if you commit sins and, and, and you're faithful and you ask for forgiveness and you confess, then, then Jesus will take care of that, right? If you see your brother committing sin, not leading to death, we should ask, and God will forgive, and we ask for forgiveness. But at the end of that verse, it says, there is a sin that leads to death. A sin that leads to death. 
And so quickly we begin to see, okay, what is that sin? My guess is that is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So then you got to scratch your head and say, okay, I really want to know what that is. Because I definitely don't want to do that because it's unforgivable. And what if I've already done that? What if, what if I did that? What if I said something that was blasphemy and I don't know what that means and now I will never be able to be saved, I'll never be able to forgive it? Well, first of all, if you're thinking that way, you probably haven't, you haven't done it. I can tell you that right now. Because if, he, if you're there, you're not thinking that way. So the question is, is it something that you say that is blasphemy? Because that's the way we think. We think of blasphemy as some, some word that we say. I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with what we say directly. It's a condition of our heart. That's, that's really what this is. It's a condition of our heart. Now remember the context of what Jesus is talking and why he's saying what he's saying right now. What have the Pharisees said to him? You're the Satan. You, you are Satan and you're the prince of the power of the air. You basically cast out your own demons. You are it. He's pointing to their heart and saying that is blasphemy. That, that is, is bordering on you'll never be saved with that attitude. Your heart is so hard. You're so far from God. You know the truth, and yet you can say it's not the truth. What do we see in Romans 1? It says, Paul says, for though they know, knew the truth, they believed the lie. There's a hardness of heart in humanity at times when we come face to face with the truth of God and we say no to it. We deny it. Notice that he's, in other places I could show you, but here, he, he's not saying that it's wrong to, to say something negative about Jesus. In fact, in passages it says you can do that. You can, you can say blaspheme Jesus. You can blaspheme God, but you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And you're like, okay, why, what's the, why is the, the person of the Godhead that we call the Holy Spirit why is that one so important? And while I can't tell you exactly, I, I'll tell you what I think. I think that what's happening here is, is that, that the Father is saying, and Jesus is saying, look, I've come. What, what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? The purpose of the Holy Spirit is the thing that makes us see Jesus. It's the, it draws us to Christ. It shows us who Christ is. It tells us who he is. And then Christ, by his death and resurrection, gives us access to the Father. So where does it all start? It starts when the Holy Spirit drawing us, showing us who Christ is. If we deny that work of God in the person of the Holy Spirit, there's no hope. There's no hope. If you deny the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's not something we probably talk about enough, right? It's Jesus, it's God the Father, and Jesus the Son. The Holy Spirit, though, is at work. It is the one that is working and sanctifying us and, and reminding us and, and convicting us of our sin and pointing us to Christ and revealing Christ to us. How do you think we understand the text? The Holy Spirit reveals it to us. And so what, what, what he's really saying is, look, if you deny that work, if you deny the person of the Holy Spirit, you will never, ever come to know me. And he's holding a, a mirror up to the, the Pharisees here and says, do you see what you're doing? These people are calling him Satan. That's why Jesus is pointing it out like he is. He's saying, look, this is a heart issue. If, if you go down this path, you may never be able to be saved. Now, can God save anyone he wants? Yes, but he, it's a condition of our heart. We see all through Scripture, right? 
We trust. But Romans says we believe the lie. Now, notice that he doesn't say the Pharisees have committed that sin and that they're not savable. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you guys have just sinned and blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and now you're not going to be saved, ever. Why? Well, because we don't, we don't, we're not sure that those people have done that. I think what God is saying is, is that there's a warning here, a very, very powerful warning to us. If your heart continues to refuse the gospel, there will be a day that it may be seared that way, that you'll never, ever believe. And that's just the, that's just the truth. And so Jesus is trying to say, don't go down that path. Don't begin to play with sin. Don't begin to think it's okay. Don't begin to, to justify your sin in your life and say, no, I can do this. Because when you're doing that, you're beginning to sear your heart. Your heart is hard. It's callous. It's saying, no, I can do this, and I can do this one, and I can do this one, but Jesus still loves me. And you're going to get way out here one day, and you're going to be so cold that you're not even going to care. The Pharisees are there. They don't care. They want their power. They don't want to lose what they have. They don't want to lose their authority. Their hearts are stone cold. They know the truth. They've been waiting for this truth for hundreds of years, and yet right here he stands before them, and they're denying him. And not only they're denying him, it's one thing to say, oh, I have questions, Jesus, about you. That's fine. Oh, Jesus, I'm not sure. I just think you're a normal man. Okay, that's fine. Jesus, uh, you've been given the Holy Spirit, and we've seen that you're healing people, but I think you're actually Satan. That's a very different place in our heart. A very different place. So what's the point? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can sear an unrepentant heart. So it's, it's not that you've said something. So I, I, you know, I got mad when I, when I was 10. I, I was with my friends and I said something about the Holy Spirit that I didn't believe in God. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not this one word that we utter. Oh, I, I, I used the God's name in vain. Now don't get me wrong. That's all sinful. You shouldn't do it. You should flee from that. You should try and kill that in your life. You should have people around your life to help hold you accountable as you do for them. Absolutely. But, but I don't want you to get so worked up and say, well, I don't want you to question because this or that. The question is, have you turned from your sin? If you have, you don't, don't worry about that you may have said something. I like it how... Uh, Henry Allen Ironside, um, he is a pastor, theologian. He was a pastor of Moody Church in Chicago uh, from 1929 to 1948. He says it this way, kind of referring to this text. These words were never intended to torment anxious souls honestly desiring to know Christ. So if you're here and you, like, you desire to know the Lord, th these words by, in the scripture here in the, in the gospel were not meant to torment you to wonder and search your past to say, oh my gosh, have I ever done that? What if I utter the wrong word? That's, he's just saying that's not what the point of what Jesus was trying to do. But they stand out as a blazing beacon warning of the danger of persisting in the rejection of the Spirit's testimony of Christ. If we deny the Holy Spirit's testimony, who's re revealing Christ to us, if we say, no, no, I don't know, and we keep saying no, there will come a day, potentially, in this life, that your heart will be so seared that you, you won't come to know Christ. 
You just won't. In fact, Paul kind of references that in Romans because he says, when man begins to, to, to deny the truth and believe the lie, what do we start to see? They start giving themselves over to sexual morality. And the more that goes, the farther that goes. And finally, God says he just turns them over. They have a reprobate mind. They're, they're searing their heart. I'm going to let them go. I don't want you to be there. I don't want to be there. I don't want to come close to that. But they stand out as a blazing beacon, warning of the danger of persisting in the rejection of the Spirit's testimony of Christ until the seared conscience no longer responds to the gospel message. You, you may even know some people that you're concerned about that. Like they have said no to the gospel every time you bring it up. And sometimes they get belligerent. Sometimes they get nasty. They don't want to hear it. I'm not saying their heart is seared. That's not the point. The point is, is that you need to pray for them because someday there may come a day which we'll never know for anyone. You'll not know for me. I'll not know for you that there's going to come a day that their heart is so seared that they will not be able to come to know Christ any longer. And that's why I think it's a warning for us. All right, let's wrap up. Last few verses here. I'll just sum these up here in just a second. Mark chapter, 30, 30, uh, chapter 3, verse 31 through 35. And his mother and brothers, so we're kind of in the same setting here, and his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, so now it seems like they've come outside now, possibly, and they have came and, said to, uh, and sent to him to call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and and said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you, right? They're kind of saying, you should go. Like, I think that was the respectful thing. They're trying to say, hey, they're here for you. How does Jesus answer? And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, he's, he's, he's framing something up here, I think. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus doing here? He's painting a contrast to the Pharisees. He's saying, look, these people are hardening their hearts so much they will not, they may never believe. Their heart is hard. They're blaspheming possibly the Holy Spirit and they may never be able to be saved. If you want to know how to have a relationship with me, do the will of my Father. That's, it's that simple. Look, and, 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 and not only is he saying that, he's saying, love me above everything else. Love me more than your husband, your wife, your children. Love me more than everything. Not just a little, tenfold, hundredfold. I am worthy of your praise. Yes, love your family. Yes, love your spouse. Husbands, be willing to die for our wives as Christ does for the church. Absolutely. But our love for God, our love for Christ, far should exceed that. I constantly, I just talked to my wife the other day about this. We were, we were having a, a gospel conversation with somebody, and we just talked about that. Because what they're going through and kind of where they're in their life, I think we all do this. When we sin, what we're really doing is we're saying we love ourselves more than we love Jesus. <laughs> because we're willing to sin to get what we want. And Jesus said, no, I don't want that for you. And to say, well, I don't care. I love myself more. Or I'm going to do it for my spouse. Or I'm going to do it for my kids because I love myself more than I love you. That's really what, that's what sin is. It's putting our wishes, our desires above God. 
That's why the first commandment is have no other gods before me. And yet we do in our hearts. And so he's just painting a contrast here. He says, look, if you love me, then you are my family. If you do the will of God, it, it's, it's, it's not just, in fact, he's gonna make a point here. He's really saying that those people that I'm related to, that doesn't make them my brothers and sisters. That doesn't make them Christians. That doesn't make them saved saints. So here's the point I think I, I wanna make from the text in these verses. A saving relationship with Jesus is spiritual. It is not biological. It is not national or nationality. And it is not ethnical. In other words, the ethnicity of us doesn't, just because you're a Jew doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you were related to Jesus and you're his brother or you're his mother doesn't make you a Christian. If you're here today and you say, well, I'm an American. I grew up in a Christian home and, and I go to church and, and I, I don't care. Good for you. That doesn't make you a Christian. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins and God saving you and causing you to be born again is what makes you a Christian. Nothing else does that. Nothing. Not being good, not giving lots of money, not, not doing any of those things, not attending, not teaching Sunday school, not preaching, not pastoring. None of those things can make people a Christian or save you from your sins. Repenting from your sins trusting in Christ and doing the will of the Father. That's where we want to rest. And he's painting the contrast to the, to the Pharisees. He's saying, don't, don't do this because you may harden your heart someday and sear it so hard that you will never come to know me. But just know that if you want to come to know me and you want to follow me and you want to love me, then I need to be first in your life, high above everything else. So what's the takeaway? Jesus clearly defines our choices. He's, he's painting two pictures here. Jesus clearly defines our choices. What are they? Repent and live or deny and die? Kind of harsh? Just a true statement. Jesus, the gospel is that clear. Repent, believe, trust me, and live. Deny me, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, harden your heart, and die. That's it. There's, there's no middle ground. There's no, you know, well, no, that's it. That's either, either for me or against me. You're the sheep or a goat. You're the weeds or you're, or you're the, the good produce that's growing up. Either you're bearing fruit or you're not bearing fruit. And what do we do with the tree that doesn't bear fruit? We cut it down, we throw it in the fire. It's just, it's just this picture all through Scripture. It's, it's, it's clear. And all that is contingent upon our putting faith and hope in Christ because he dies in our place. Because see, justice requires that something has to, to suffer and to die. And Jesus takes that. Acts chapter 16, it's not going to be on the screen. Here the jailer in in. Uh, I think Paul and Silas are in prison and, and there's some things happen. That the Lord shakes the doors. They open up. There's an earthquake, I think, and, and, and they don't leave. The, the, guard, the, the jailer gets back. He's so freaked that they're going to be gone and he's going to probably die because he's going to be put to death for letting them go. And they're still there. They're sitting there. He's like, what are you guys doing here? I can't believe you're still here. And they say, well, yeah. And they shared the gospel with him. And he says, what must I do to be saved? 
Because, man, whatever you have, I want that. And what do they say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Believe. That means trust in. That means turn away from your sin. It doesn't mean, oh, yeah, just intellectually. No, it means trust in him, believe in him, put your faith in him, seek after him, hate your sin, and you will be saved. That's where you find your hope. Last scripture, and I'll close. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I've hardened my heart over in the past over things. Before I was a believer, after I've been a believer, that's a dangerous, dangerous place. When you deny and harden your heart towards what you hear the Holy Spirit saying to you, that's a very dangerous place. I would encourage you, do not harden your heart when you hear him speaking to you. Pursue him in a love relationship. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you for the clarity of Scripture. I ask your forgiveness where we don't get it right. Father, it's a heavy thing to rightly divide your word. So, Father, when and if we are in error, please bring correction. But, Father, this morning as we've looked at this, I think we have a, an understanding of what it means to, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to deny the work of the Spirit in the Godhead, in us, Without that work, Father, we are lost. Father, help us not to harden our hearts. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Father, you tell us, we pray that you will not allow us to be led into temptation because, Father, that begins to harden our heart. When we begin to, to play with sin and justify it in our life, Father, it begins to harden our heart. When we begin to, to speak out and lead other people astray, Father, those are signs that our heart is hardening are hardening. And Father, we pray that you will not allow us to go down that path. You've put us in a body of believers so that we will admonish one another, that we will reach out and draw people back from the edge. We'll remind each other of the hope and the confession that we've made in Christ. Father, I thank you for this comparison that you've given. Help us to to honor you above all things, to put you first, to seek after you, to hate our sin, and rest in the grace that you give us through your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.